is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Scientists and public health officials focusing on the Omicron variant. There are still a lot they don't know. The public was made aware of the variants just last week, and then we saw the travel bans. But it might have been spreading for at least a few weeks and might not have originated in South Africa. Omicron's getting Wall Street nervous, so don't look at your 401k. Merck's new COVID treatment pill may be not as great as we all once thought. Pharmacies are dealing with worker shortages. Not good timing in the middle of a pandemic. We start, though, with the mystery around the origins of Omicron. Dr. Monica Gandhi is back with us, infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. So, Dr. Latest News, the Netherlands is reporting at least two cases there that predates the ones found in South Africa. So what does that tell you? You know, what that suggests to me is this variant has been circulating and it's um, I don't know where it's originated, but it looks like it's been circulated in Europe even before it got described in South Africa. What South Africa did for us, actually, is figure out a really clean way to look for it, because there's this kind of interesting way to look for it on a PCR test um, before we sequence, and describe it to the world. And they kind of got punished by absolute travel bans on South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and, and and probably it's been circulating in other places uh, for a bit, and, and we have no idea where it came from. Okay, so now at least thanks to them, we can try and figure out where it is now as we go over the next couple of weeks and try and learn some more. Right. But what could this kind of say to us? Let's say it's been places for a month. Maybe it's either responsible for some of the rises we've been seeing in the case numbers, or maybe it's been around for a month and you can say, hey, maybe it's not going to end up being that bad. I guess those are two things we'll have to see which way it goes. Right. So I actually think that it it probably means two things. It means that um, in highly vaccinated places, we've been seeing very low hospitalizations and severe disease. And that is despite the increasing case numbers in some places in Europe. Severe disease has been protected against if you have a vaccination rate of 75% or above. For example, here in the Bay Area, really, really low hospitalization rates that are 80% um, rates of vaccination. And so nothing has changed over the last month in terms of that protection from severe disease. And most sciences think that these vaccines are going to be just fine in protecting against the Omicron variant in terms of severe disease. Otherwise, we would have seen increasing hospitalizations. Where will increasing hospitalizations be seen with any variant? In places of low vaccination, like South Africa does have a 23% vaccination rate. So increasing hospitalizations could be because of low vaccination rate. So it's good news that it's been around longer because we haven't seen some suddenly massive breakthrough um, uh, vaccines, for example, they are working. And that's good news. And if it's been a lot around a lot longer, it probably is not going to cause severe waves. You know, I'm also uh, interested in, in your thoughts on whether or not even the the metric of hospitalizations uh, is a, a good one to use. And the reason I ask that is because in many countries, people routinely go to hospitals for illnesses that people here in the U.S. would not ever go to a hospital for. In, in this country, we would more typically, if we have a physician anyway, call our doctor and try to get advice. But in some countries, even you know, very uh, industrialized places like the U.K., many people, because of their medical system, just routinely go to the hospital. The problem, you're right, that 
hospitalizations are misclassified either way, meaning in countries where you go to the hospital, if you have COVID in your nose, you can be misclassified as that being a COVID hospitalization, that that you're there for something else. That has actually happened in this country as well, about 25 to 40% of the time, because we screen everyone's nose for COVID. It's not anything we've done for anything else because of infection control purposes. So we don't want anyone to be exposed. So we screen people. So there, there's misclassification at all elements. The problem is if you go by cases only, um, this is what the vaccines do. They protect us from severe disease, but they may not protect us from mild breaks of infections or from having asymptomatic COVID in our nose. So if we only go by cases, we're going to act like the pandemic's out, things are out of control in places when actually severe disease like influenza and COVID are being kept to a low rate. So I think we will have to shift to a hospitalization metric for policy. Well, I, I, I was going to ask, at the, at the risk of being a bit crass, uh, should we really just be using the metric of death, that, that if we start seeing an increase, substantial increase in people dying, then we know that we are facing a more formidable foe, but just hospitalizations alone might not matter. That's a very fair point if hospitalizations are mischaracterized, which they are and misclassified both in low-income countries and in high-income countries. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. The stock market here in the U.S. shaky over concerns about the Omicron variant. Investors and traders worried about more shutdowns. There's also the supply chain problems and then a possible government shutdown could happen. Kriti Gupta covers the markets for Bloomberg News. Uh, Kriti, bad time to look at that portfolio, huh? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. You're having a rough couple of days. But I mean, put this into some perspective here. You had, if you're investing in the S&P 500, uh, which most of our 401ks are, you have already had over 20% of gain. So a, a pullback of, say, 2% today, it's not going to hurt you in the long term. But yes, today was not a fun day for the market. Yeah, I guess it's just, uh, you know, somewhat psychological. When I see the big red number, I forget that I had a whole year preceding this. It just feels uncomfortable <laughs> to me. But so what do we have? We have Omicron. That was Friday. And then it's again today. But um, Powell also opened his mouth, right? Yes, he did. So you've got a, a multitude of factors here. I mean, put this into perspective. We're talking about, uh, of course, a COVID pandemic, right? So we are dealing with the Omicron variant, specifically uncertainty. That is the golden rule of the stock market. Essentially, when you don't know what's coming, that's going to be very, very hard for someone, an investor, to know what to buy or what to sell. And that's really at, at the crux of it. The Omicron variant right now, the issue here isn't necessarily that uh, there's a new variant because we've dealt with variants before. It's the Delta variant, for example example. What we don't know is the efficacy of the vaccine, the how long it'll take to create one, and whether or not we actually need a new vaccine, and whether or not the spread is bad enough for us to close our borders or go into lockdown. That's something you are seeing in other parts of the world, but not here in the United States. So it's all those unknowns that's driving the market lower. But to your point, you also have the Federal Reserve. Chairman Powell speaking in Congress today talking about cutting back uh, bond purchases at a much faster rate than expected before. And on one side, that's a good thing because it kind of means that the economy doesn't really need that extra support anymore uh, or life support, essentially. Then, But then on the other hand, the markets are kind of addicted to it. So you do see a little bit of a tantrum on that front. But we're going to have these uncertainties that you just ticked off, uh, vaccine efficacy, uh, how dangerous is this variant. Uh, these uncertainties are probably going to be with us 
for at least another couple of weeks. So are we likely to, to, to see this continuous turbulence in the in the markets? Or will investors move in now and think, well, you know, these stocks are pretty cheap and start buying up and bring it back up again? Yeah, well, so to answer two different questions there. First, is this what we're going to see uh, in, in the near term? Yeah, it actually is, because uh, really what markets want to know is a little bit of certainty on the vaccine front or on the Omicron front, which we don't really have the full data. You heard uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci talk about that as well. So we're still waiting for the full information. And on the Fed front, we have a meeting in about two weeks from the Federal Reserve, and that's where we're going to get a little bit more clarity about simply the pace of that life support uh, that they are essentially withdrawing uh, when that comes in January. So for the next two weeks, it's pretty expected that you're going to see a bunch of those market shitters. Inflation for how long, according to Jerome Powell? Does he put a date on? Because he's saying, you know what, we were doing transitory before, but uh, it's probably not the case now because it's been with us for a while. Right. So he's uh, dropped the, the word transitory from his vocabulary at the moment. But something he has said in past meetings was essentially that if in the second or third quarter of 2022, you don't start to see inflation come back down, whether it's through commodity prices or food prices or whatever your metric is, that's really where the Fed is going to be extremely concerned. Based on his testimony today, it seems like those concerns are already seeping into the narrative, but that's the time frame he's given in the past. Kriti Gupta covers the markets for Bloomberg News. A panel of FDA advisors signing off on emergency use authorization for Merck's COVID treatment pill. Now it's up to the FDA to approve it. The treatment was once viewed as a game changer. Maybe not so much now. With us is Dr. Phyllis Tien, infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco, member of the COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel for the NIH. Uh, Doctor, is this pill not as effective as Merck first said it was? Uh, yes. I mean, once uh, they were able to analyze the full uh, data set, it, it looked like it was not as good as your initial press release um, that came out when they had analyzed about half the uh, participants that were in the trial. OK, and, and maybe a lesson, I guess, learned there about medicine by press release. Right. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, there's also, though, a, a, a genuine concern, is there not, about this particular medication and women who are of childbearing age or who are pregnant? Right, right. Um, there has been a lot of concern about whether or not this drug can be used in pregnant women and you know, I think it's just really unclear, um, you know, about whether or not we could use it in this population. First of all, the, the clinical trials that uh, Merck conducted of this, uh, of this oral antiviral actually excluded um, pregnant women and women who are of childbearing potential were asked to actually take contraception during the trial. Um, so I think I'm not sure we have enough scientific evidence right now for its use in pregnant women. I know, um, as you mentioned, the FDA advisory committee is actively discussing this probably right now as we speak. Um, And I think it's really important to have a discussion about this uh, particular group because pregnant women are vulnerable to progression of COVID-19 disease. Um, but we really need to carefully consider the risks versus the benefits. And, you know, I, I think that's uh, something the FDA is deliberating about today. There is also the Pfizer pill. What kind of track is that on versus this one? And does the efficacy of that, so far as we know, uh, hold up better? 
Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question, because what we know, I think, about the Pfizer drug was also in a press release. Um, so I think we'll hear more about that drug. But press release, it looked like um, the reduction in hospitalizations and death after taking this oral pill uh, looked a little bit better. Now, am I correct also, uh, doctor, that the Pfizer pill, in terms of any potential issues with, with, say, pregnant women, might be less of an issue or no issue because isn't that based on medication that has now long been used to treat HIV, whereas the Merck pill is a much more novel technique? You're absolutely right. Um, Yeah, so the Pfizer drug is a protease inhibitor, and we have used protease inhibitors to treat people living with HIV and also with hepatitis C. Um, And the drug also has to be used in combination with another protease inhibitor, which is one that we uh, definitely have used in people with HIV. Um, So we do know more about that drug. Um, So, yeah, hopefully it'll have uh, uh, more promise. Are these for or aimed at, you know, the unvaccinated who get COVID or would they still be for vaccinated people who are getting some sort of breakthrough case? I I mean, I I think, um, you know, we would try to we should try to consider it in people who have breakthrough um, infection, as well as people who have infection that, you know, are are not vaccinated. I do know, for example, that the Merck clinical trial, I believe it was done in people who were not vaccinated, but I see no reason why it could not really be used in in anyone who who has COVID infection. Are you concerned, uh, and I've asked this question of some other experts when we've talked about these these meds, that uh, for those people who are still, you know, for whatever their reasons, vehemently anti-vaccination, that those people are going to say, you know what, Uh, now I don't need to get vaccinated because if I do get COVID, I'll just pop one of the Merck pills or maybe one of the Pfizer pills and all will be well. Yeah, that, that's a great question. What we do make need to, to make a distinction right now because the you know Merck drug that is being discussed today at the FDA is for people who are already, you know, I guess infections. So yeah, we still want vaccines are still the way to go in terms of preventing um, you know, bad disease uh, if you get it. And I think there is also um, you know, the ability to actually prevent transmission. Um, so I, you know, I really want to m- emphasize that vaccines are still the way to go. Um, you know, as you have seen with the, the Merck drug, um, you know, in the beginning, we thought if there might be a you know, risk reduction of 50%. Now with more data, it's 30%. So we know that the vaccines, um, with the efficacy of the vaccines, it is well above 50%. Um, So I would still uh, highly advocate for getting vaccine. Dr. Phyllis Tien, infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco. Coming up after a short break, is your pharmacist missing? Better check because they might be gone. Pharmacies are getting hit now with worker shortages. 
Pharmacists and pharmacy technicians are strained across the country. Finding enough of them to work has been tough. There's been reduced hours, long lines, closures. KYW's Matt Leon talks to Dr. Edward Foote, professor and dean of the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy at uh, the University of the Sciences. He explains what's going on. So what's happened in between pre-COVID, we seem... There, there was not an issue with pharmacists, the availability of pharmacists to work in community and retail pharmacies. There was plenty of pharmacists, some would argue maybe even a, a few too many pharmacists that were available to kind of work in those areas. Um, all of our graduates would get jobs, but they had to work for them. And, and that's okay. But some people would suggest there are too many pharmacists. And technicians, probably enough, I would say. So what's happened Really, I, I've seen in the last six months, some of it is, much of it is anecdotal, uh, but I think it's strong anecdotal evidence is suddenly there's a shortage of workers. There's not enough pharmacists to staff pharmacies, and there's not enough technicians to staff pharmacies. And it has really, really become a problem in certain areas of the country, um, certain communities. So it's not, I can't say it's, it's throughout, but it's, it's clearly something that's, that's happening right now. On the broad scope, this worker shortage we're seeing across all sectors, as much as some politicians and some national media people would like it to be one thing so that they can have an easy story to tell, it is multiple things. And it depends on who you talk to and where you are and what the job is. Are we looking at kind of a cross-section of that here, where it is not necessarily pay, it's not just interactions with customers, it's not just how you're treated, it it's a lot of different things that are at work here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so pharmacy, you know, remember that your pharmacist and the pharmacy is your most accessible source of healthcare. You can walk into a pharmacy, you don't pay a dime and you can say, can you, can you give me a suggestion for an over-the-counter medicine, right? The most accessible healthcare. So we are a healthcare provider, but many times the public sees us a little less like a healthcare provider, more like a retailer. You know, um, when you have a drive-through through your healthcare, you know, in a pharmacy, people start to think that it's it's less than a healthcare center and health, a source of information. So sometimes, uh, you know, pharmacists and pharmacy technicians aren't necessarily treated very well by patients uh, who are sick, right? They're sick, and then they're waiting for their medicine, and they're getting patient, and it's getting really, really busy here. Suddenly we have the COVID shots, the COVID testing, which we were not doing. And in many cases, the pharmacies were not able or willing to add additional staff, right? Because we, we talked about how they're not making a lot of money on medications. So pharmacies and pharmacists and pharmacy technicians are stretched. And so I, I anecdotally, I know some people my age, I'm in my mid-50s, and they, they retired out of pharmacy. They just didn't want to do it anymore. Technicians can make as much flipping burgers, you know, and flipping burgers is really important, but I would argue that being a pharmacy technician has a hot, lot higher responsibility. And so we've, we've seen people leave for more money. Um, it is a stressful environment in, in community pharmacies these days. Um, and they just, some people just are, are having difficulty. One, one of the things I always tell my pharmacy students is that there's so much to do in pharmacy. So it's not just retail pharmacy. You could work in hospital. You could work in the pharmaceutical industry. You could do consulting. And I have a feeling that some pharmacists realized I can do other things. There's other things I can do with this pharmacy degree. And, and we're seeing that in the broader, I think, the broader economy as well, that people are just kind of reinventing themselves. Um, I had a conversation with a, a leader in, in retail pharmacy the other day, and we were just, it was almost like, where have all the pharmacists gone? You know, they're out there and I don't think they're 
collecting unemployment, I think they're working and they're just in very different areas and they're, they're finding new things to do. So it's very, it's very complex uh, and multifactorial. Let's try to address this. Once again, as we said, it's not just one thing why we're seeing what we're seeing, but putting, you know, obviously, as you just mentioned, pharmacy is pharmacy technicians should make more money. And that would be one, one level here, but what are some other things that could be done to make this uh, a more attractive for people at both levels, at the pharmacist level and the pharmacy technician level? Kind of where would you start if you had the chance to, I don't know, reimagine this? Right. Um, if money were not an issue, we can talk about why money is an issue in a minute, but if money were less of an issue, at least, we simply need to put more pharmacists and pharmacy technicians in these stores. There's just not enough people working. Um, and, and part of it is the companies feel they're not making enough money in the pharmacy to put more people in. But now we're also seeing that even if even if we want to hire people, people don't want to come. So it's, it's, it's this catch-22. We don't have enough people. And now people don't want to come because the working environment is getting more difficult. Okay. And I'm making generalizations. There's certainly some great pharmacies that are doing great. And, you know, so I'm making some general generalizations of that about the working conditions in pharmacies. So I'll say some pharmacies, right? Uh, but it's clearly, clearly an issue. So I, we got to get more people in there, um, either, either technicians or pharmacists. The, the industry as a whole has, has used technology to help the pharmacists. Uh, do their work. You know, 20 years ago, we're able to safely dispense, I can't give you an exact number, I would say two or three times more prescriptions than we could two or three uh, decades ago, because most pharmacists are not counting by hand, and we have automated fill machines and things. So we have technology to help us, um, but that will only go so far, right? Right now, we don't have robots talking to patients, right? So, um, so it's that three things, more staff, I think, uh, both the pharmacist and the, the um, um, technician, getting technology even better, all right, that we can safely, safely, safely do our job. Um, but I think the core, and this is a hard fix, is the reimbursement model for medications and pharmacies. So there's something called pharmacy benefits man management. And what that is, is essentially a middleman. So if you have a, uh, if you have medication insurance, there's a third company that kind of handles that business. So they would essentially buy the, the medications and, and they handle the financial side of getting it to the pharmacy. And they're the ones that have, um, have really clamped down on reimbursement to pharmacies. So pharmacists might sell a $300 medication and they make $10 on it and, or $5. You just can't, you can't run a business that way. And so until we really fix, um, that model of how we are paying for those services, either for the medication themselves or when a pharmacist does something beyond just dispensing medication. Until we fix that, I, th I think we're in a problem. We're really going to ha have a problem. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work going on in the courts and in the legislature to somehow fix the reimbursement model. Because many pharmacists and pharmacies will say they're just being, they're being cheated out of a fair process in, in terms of how medications are reimbursed. Researchers in Qatar say COVID reinfections are rarely severe. They say the odds of developing severe disease were 88% lower for people with second infections. Reinfected patients were 90% less likely to be hospitalized compared to patients infected for the first time. Now, no one in the study with a second infection required intensive care or 
more importantly, died from COVID-19. Now, one researcher says nearly all reinfections were mild, possibly because of immune memory that prevented things from getting worse. You can find this Odyssey original on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.